<laughs> Alright, let's open up prayer. We're continuing through First Thessalonians and this is where we're up to. We had a, a quick break from First Thessalonians last week um, and Samuel gave us a message from Jeremiah chapter 5. Um, so this is kind of... we. Kind of the second half of the last one we looked at in First Thessalonians. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that it is to have your word. Lord, we think of our believers around the world who would just so dearly treasure to have a copy of your word in their hands. Yet most of us here probably have multiple copies at home on our shelves and may not if we're being brutally honest, have the same excitement about it as those people who really wish they had one for themselves. But in your word, we have the very words of God given to us. So we pray with expectation as we look to it this morning that your spirit would be at work through your word and in our, in our lives and our hearts to change us, to transform us, to be the people you have called us to be. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to uh, say the things that are in accordance with your truth and to not say things... Uh, that would be distracting or to take away from the things you have given to us. Uh, work in us to your good purposes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Get a life. That's a nice way to start a sermon, isn't it? Get a life. We're all familiar with the expression, and it doesn't tend to be a compliment, does it? It tends to mean someone says, get a life when your life pursuit is all wrapped up in something that might be considered to be insignificant. Now, I've got a number of friends who, when you look at their social media stuff, you think they are living the dream. Every time you look at their photos, they're on some exotic location around the world, not a care in the world, just having a great old time. And I've been tempted at times, I've never done it, just to write, get a life. Because... You're not too sure how they're going to respond to it because you think, why would you say that in that setting? Or even more inappropriate, and this one I wouldn't do, if someone was talking about some really significant social work, helping out the great cause of humanity, saving kids, imagine if there I wrote, get a life. It just wouldn't make sense to put a comment like that against someone who's investing their life in something so deep and significant. Because it's an expression we say about someone who's invested in is pursuing something that is not really important at all. If you knew someone who spent their life travelling the world collecting antique clothes pegs, you'd have very good reason to say, get a life. You might think with regards to my interest in St Kilda. Steve, get a life. But as we start to think about what things where it's appropriate to say, get a life actually causes us to think on the other side of what does it mean to have a life? Or what does it mean to, to use the common expression, what does it mean to live the good life? Now Paul, as a Christian leader, writing to Christians, talks about what he calls to be the good life. And I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think about living the good life, but I think what Paul talks about here is probably very different than the first thoughts that pop into your mind. And if these are Paul's thoughts as expressed in the word of God, then they're a reflection of what is truly living a good life. 
I said this is kind of like part two. We looked at chapter two, verse 17, verse through to chapter three, verse five. And we titled that one, Caring for One Another Spiritually. And this is kind of the, the second part of those two passages put together. And when we looked at that, we saw that when Paul got separated from the Thessalonians because of the persecution, he had to, to be snuck out and leave by night. Paul had a deep care and concern for the believers in Thessalonica. Like he uses language, he says, we were torn from you, which literally was, we were orphaned from you. He said to be disconnected from these Christians for him was like being torn away from his own flesh and blood, his own children. And it was more than just missing people he liked spending time with. He had a real deep concern for their faith and for their spiritual well-being. He said he got to a point where it got unbearable. Not being able to see them face to face, not knowing how they're going in their faith in the middle of the trials that they are facing. That was his main concern. He knew that when he left, he left because things were getting tough. And his concern was, I want to know that they are still going forward in the faith in the middle of that. How are they going? So we see Paul's resolve in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Have you ever actually been that concerned for someone's spiritual well-being that it's been unbearable not to go to them and to do something about it? Paul not only takes action, but he's willing to sacrifice, like Timothy, who's very important to him in his ministry. He's having to be left alone and sent Timothy. And what is the cure he sends Timothy with in the middle of their trials? To encourage them in their faith. In a sense, it was a continuation of what Paul had done when he was amongst them. He'd brought the gospel to them, which they'd come to faith and salvation, but he had nurtured them. He had been teaching them, growing them towards maturity in Christ and who they were. When we looked at our first one in the previous sermon, we spoke about how one of Eastgate's values is love that is genuine and tangible. We actually pondered for a while what it would look like for that to actually live out in the life of our church with regards to the things we're talking about. Where people have such a deep, intimate concern for one another's faith within the family of God here, like Paul did towards the Thessalonians, that when people are going through the deepest, hardest times of life, that there are people there to encourage them in the faith. When people are going through minor little issues in life the people are there to encourage them in the faith when things are going as good as they could ever be in this corrupted broken world to have people there who are encouraging one another in the faith because we were reminded in hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 we're told to encourage one another every day as long as it's called today so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin We're very good at encouraging people in the faith when things are going downhill. But we're reminded to encourage each other in the faith, the gospel on which we stand on a daily basis, even when things are good, because we need it. Now that Paul, and we looked in the last message, 
He'd suffered from being a part. He was worried about them. He was concerned. Today we hear Timothy's report after he goes to encourage them in their faith. In verses 6 to 7, we'll see how the gospel brings back in return. We see the real life in verses 8 to 10. And Paul's continuing to return to them to continue God's work in verses 11 to 13. Now remember, Paul is writing at a time now, Timothy has just come back and he's told them about how things are going. Now if you go back to chapter 1, you see Paul's already got lots of thanksgiving for the Thessalonian church. And he talks about them for the great love that they have and how their faith has played out in such a way that people all around the area know about them. Even the churches in Macedonia are looking to the Thessalonians as an example of what it means to live a life worthy of the calling of the gospel. But when we went on to chapter 2 and onwards, we saw that in Paul's absence, some claims have been made against him, some accusations, and he defends himself. But then in the last message, we saw that how he's also deeply concerned for how they are standing up in the faith. So here his big concerns were, in light of the rumours, how are people thinking about me? In light of the trials and persecutions are going on around them, how are they going in their faith? Is it affecting their love for one another? So it must have been quite a joy to Paul to write the words of verse 6, but now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you've always remembered us kindly, long to see us as we long to see you. So he says, he's come back with the good news that despite the trials, despite the persecutions, your faith and your love are growing and abounding. And not only that, despite all the things that have been said about Paul, they're longing to see him too. It would have been pretty awkward after all the things that Paul had just written if they said, leave us alone, Paul, we've had enough. But what you might not pick up on in the English, where it says, Timothy came and he's brought us the good news, that word translated good news is the same word throughout the rest of the New Testament speak of to evangelise, to proclaim the gospel. And it's kind of sad that some of the commentaries that I was reading through, commentators were saying this is the one case in the New Testament where it doesn't mean that. But I think you'll find that it does mean the same thing. What Timothy has come back to report is what the gospel has done in the life of the Thessalonians so that they can stand firm in the middle of trials and persecutions, that they have been growing in their faith, growing in their love. It is the gospel at work in them. This is the gospel in action. The gospel isn't just something for when we first come to faith. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the gospel by which we have been saved, on which we stand and on by which we were being saved. So what Timothy has come back to report, he's proclaimed the gospel which has begun a work in them is still at work amongst the Thessalonians. And the result is they're growing in love and faith despite all of the hardships and despite the rumours and things that were said against Paul. So there's been good gospel work in them in the middle of the hardship. In the middle of their hardship, the gospel's been at work. But as Paul now comes to hear about it, in the middle of his hardship, he says, 
it's brought him much comfort in all of his hardship as well. It's an interesting way to look at that, that the gospel, on one hand, enables one party, the Thessalonians, to endure, to stand firm in the middle of anything that comes their way. But it's not only for the benefit of them, but for the benefit of others, and in this case, Paul, to be encouraged by the fact of seeing the gospel at work in the life of the Thessalonians. And there is only one gospel, one good news. So if we're talking about the big question of what is a good life, or what is the good life, then it must be the one in relation to the good news. In the introduction, we talked about living the good life. I don't know what ideas came to your mind when you think about living the good life. But it's probably a bit different than the one Paul describes. He says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What do you mean? What do you mean now we live if they stand fast in the Lord? Is he saying somehow, now I know that I'm saved because you guys have become Christian and you are growing? No, Paul's been saved. He's had this eternal life. He's entered into that for some time now. Paul is not being saved by the fact that he's done certain things in the lives of the Thessalonians. But he's been reminded that the faith which he has is genuine and he's seeing the evidence and the fruit coming from that as God has worked through him into the lives of the Thessalonians. Now Paul's life, and not just Paul's life, but every single Christian's life is intended to be wrapped up and centred around Jesus and around the gospel. So it shouldn't be a surprise that for Paul to say that this is the life when he sees the gospel bearing fruit to bring people to salvation, when the gospels that work in those people, seeing them grow in their love and faith, he says, this is what life's about. Because as a Christian, I am centered around Jesus and the gospel and nothing else should bring me greater joy than this. So he says, this is it. Now we live. The Apostle John speaks about the same joy, but in a different way in Third John. It says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your, to your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. See, it's as someone who is oriented around the gospel, who belongs to Jesus, actually should be exciting to see God at work in the life of other people. Last week we were challenged about the depth of our spiritual relationships with one another. Question, are we concerned enough for one another that we want to know how each other are going in the faith, in the good times, in the so-so times, and even in the hard times? Because if we are, then it should be no greater joy. It should be a pursuit. It should be a joy to our heart, something to celebrate when we see the gospel bearing fruit in the lives of others enabling them to stand in the middle of hardships, that we could gather together and celebrate those things. Just imagine how differently maybe our prayer groups or our time in our community groups when we pray together might sound different. Rather than just praying, God, may your gospel help me to stand and endure through the hardships, that we can actually thank God that by his gospel and celebrate how he's provided by the gospel so we can stand and endure. 
We often bring the request and forget to praise and give thanks for what the gospel actually allows us and, and permits us and gives us the ability to do. Paul is overwhelmed with thanksgiving and joy. See in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. This, he's like over the moon about this. It's not just like, oh, that's all right. These Christians are going along pretty good. He's like, I can't contain myself. This is so joyous. What thanks can I give to our God? He's not celebrating, what thanks can I give to the Thessalonians? Good work, Thessalonians. Just like the Thanksgiving in the first chapter where he says, I thank God because effectively God is the one who's working this change in them, not the Thessalonians. And I think we need to be careful about how we give thanks for God's work in the, people, in, in the lives of people. Because sometimes we might overemphasize, give thanks for the people that they did this, they did that. And when we orient prayers that give thanks to the peop- for what the people are doing rather to God then we actually start to discourage people from depending upon God, who is the one who gives and supplies us our needs to live by the gospel. Now, you could easily make the mistake, Paul was worried about them, they've been going through hardships, and everything's going sweet to think, oh, great, the Thessalonians have mastered the Christian life, let's get on and do something else. These guys have, these guys have nailed it. But he doesn't, does he? After hearing the report of a group of Christians that he commended earlier, are still growing and growing, even in the middle of hardships, he prays in verse 10 that he still might be able to return to see them face to face. Are people who are doing great. He wants to return to them and supply what is lacking in their faith. Whether he wants to add in addition to the teaching that he's already given them, Or as we look in the subsequent weeks, we see that he actually addresses and teaches them some things that he's already taught them, so possibly to um, encourage them or exhort them into things they've already learnt to actually start applying them in their lives. But he's got a deep longing for their spiritual maturity and he wants to return to them that God's work in them might continue. As Paul continues in prayer, as he directs his prayers both to the Father and to the Son, He both prays for himself and for the Thessalonians. Firstly, he prays for himself that, as he's previously said, Satan has hindered us from coming back to you. He prays that God might provide a way that Paul may be able to return to them. For the Thessalonians, he prays that they might increase and abound in their love for one another and for all. I love that in Paul's prayers. Remember if you go back to the first chapter... When Paul is giving thanks for the Thessalonian church, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father for your work of faith and labour of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's already commended. This is a church that is known for their love. Paul's desire is to return to them so they may grow and increase in their love. A church that's already doing it really well. That's what I like about Paul's prayer. He's like, the Christian life is never about just reading a standard where it's good enough or we've come far enough. No matter 
how well they're going in their love for one another, no matter how good they're going in their faith, no no matter whatever area of your life is the pinnacle of your Christian living, I can assure you now, you haven't made it. You haven't got as far as God desires you to be. Now, we're very good at praying for the areas for which we know we're majorly lacking and inadequate. But how often do we pray for the growth of things that are already going well? That we would desire to grow in every area of our life, not just the, the struggles, or do we just settle for that, no, this one's going all right, there's no major problems, we just won't pray about that. I mean, after all, our hope and our longing in life should be one day to be before Jesus, face to face, never struggling with sin. And if our desire is for a life when we're going to live in that for all eternity, would we want to experience as much and as close to that as now as we can? And Paul's desire for these Thessalonians is that they'll be blameless in holiness before God at the return of Christ. He says, I want you to be blameless into heart. Because Paul understands that change, just as Jesus taught, happens at the heart. What you deeply love, that's what will carry out in the things in which you do and the things in which you speak. All lasting, God-honoring change starts with a change of heart. As always, so what? Probably a fair question to ask. Are we living the good life? It's fair to say that when I first put out the idea of a concept of a good life, whatever came to your mind, you might have thought, nah, I can't live the good life, I can't afford that. But the good life that the Apostle Paul has spoken about in this chapter is actually something which is within reach of every single one of us if we're a Christian. And not only is it within reach, it's something that we're made for. We are, we are brought together into a family, into a, to a body, into a belonging to one another. And it's one thing to be challenged by the idea of how good would it be to have, live in a Christian community that looked like this, where people had such a deep concern for one another's spiritual well-being in all seasons of life, to encourage each other in the faith. Where we're celebrating in those things, when we see the gospel at work in the lives of people. But that's just really just taking hold, standing firm on the gospel that we all know. By really taking hold of the gospel that we all know, we can too, like the Thessalonians, endure in all things. The gospel actually does apply to all things. We can also give thanks for how the gospel has caused us and enabled us to stand amongst all things. But not only that, what we saw in the lives of the Thessalonians, not only did the gospel help them to stand and endure and increase in love and faith, in the middle of hardships but that brought comfort and encouragement to others in this case Paul as he's seen the gospel work in the lives of others so I wanted us to encourage each one of us that the gospel has the promises provides everything we need that we might stand no matter what comes our way and not only for our encouragement and for our comfort but that's going to encourage challenge and comfort fellow Christians who see how the gospel is at work in your life 
but also challenge people who don't know Jesus around you. You think, how on earth are you enduring with such joy with the things that are going on in your life around you? Whenever we become genuinely a Jesus and gospel-centred people, we will desire the spiritual well-being of the people around us. We want to see them see the gospel at work to bring people to salvation. We'll see, want to see the gospel at work bringing people to maturity in Christ. And if we desire the spiritual well-being in others, then it'll be a joy to see the gospel at work in others. Doesn't mean it's going to come easy. As in all things in the Christian life, we need God to do a deep work in our hearts to change us for things that don't come naturally to us. And if it is your desire, then join with me now as we pray for it, for us individually, uh, but for us as a church family, for his glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church family that you have given us. But you haven't just brought us together so that we can have a, a happy club on a Sunday morning. Lord, we are, have a belonging to one another. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are deeply concerned for the spiritual well-being of one another. That we would actively seek to encourage one another in the faith in all seasons, not just the difficult times, but even in the good times. That, Lord, we bring our prayers before you in complete dependence, not just for the areas of the life in which we are really struggling, but, Lord, that you would refine even the areas that we are our closest things to being called the strength. Lord, we don't want to be just cruising Christians who are on cruise control at an acceptable level. We want to proclaim the wonderful work of the gospel and its effect in the lives of people that people might see and bring glory to Jesus Christ. Change our hearts. Give us a deep love for one another. Give us a renewed confidence in your gospel that will pervade every aspect of our life, our thoughts and our actions. And Lord, may we the way which we conduct ourselves with one another and with those who do not know you be to the honour and glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. There you go. Next week, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. So if you don't like reading, I reckon you can nail 8 verses by next week. <laughs>